Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just the show for you. He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze, and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Businessweek, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Credit Edge, a weekly markets podcast. My name is James Crombie. I'm a senior editor at Bloomberg. This week, we're very pleased to welcome Neil Callanan, our London-based corporate finance czar. How are you, Neil? I'm very good, James. Thank you for having me on the show. Great to have you on the Credit Edge. Also on the show this week, we'll be talking to Jody Lurie at Bloomberg Intelligence about the leisure sector, cruise lines, gambling, all the fun stuff. So do stay with us. But first... Neil Callanan with Bloomberg News. Great to see you. Let's start with the good news. The US economy is strong. The war on inflation is won. Rates are coming down, which should be a relief to borrowers. Essentially, the recession that everyone was fearing has not happened. And yet, you're telling us we should still be worried about this year. For those who missed it, Neil put out a great story just before Christmas, ruined everyone's holiday, actually, entitled Euphoria on Fed Pivot Prospects Ignores the Lagging Hangover. Essentially, we're all getting ahead of ourselves, thinking it's going to be okay. There's a lot of stuff to be worried about, actually. So break it down for us, Neil. What is the story? Why, why, why is there so much trouble in 2024? Uh, well, basically, it comes down to the fact that interest rates take a while to work their way into the economy, interest rate increases. And so particularly with so many people not feeling the impacts through their mortgages in the U.S., the actual uh, full scale of what's happened in terms of the rapid nature of the interest rate increases hasn't fully filtered through to people yet. And the usual thing in economics is it's 18 months to two years after you start interest rate increases that people start to really feel the impact and see the impact. And that, of course, means that this year should, in theory, whether in practice or not will happen, see those interest rates really start to hit the economy. whether that will mean a soft landing or not, we've yet to see. But there is a massive euphoria about rate cuts. And what usually happens when rate cuts uh, are happening is actually recession is uh, underway or around the corner. Uh, and so there was this massive kind of um, um, swell of uh, you know euphoria in December on the fact that the Fed is finally pivoting, the Fed is finally pivoting. Uh, what will actually happen in reality uh, towards uh, with asset prices is yet to be seen. So um, too open to, too too soon, sorry, to open the champagne on the rate cuts. But you know, even if they do start happening um, in March, as some people predict, and they do go as deep as some people predict, you know, 150 basis points, some people think um, could happen from the Fed. That's not enough to save us. Yeah, well, it depends on the sector, right? And I, I mean, you know, the the tech 
sector has been going gangbusters, whether that will continue or not, we have to see. But uh, a lot of what I've been looking at in the last year is the problems emerging in commercial real estate. And um, I think regardless of the speed and size of the rate cuts, there's still going to be an enormous amount of distress there. Um, there's almost three trillion of US commercial real estate debt due to mature within five years. Um, and the problem in a way is that you know, you had a lot of people making a lot of money and then borrowing cheaply with that money to leverage on top to buy assets that are now falling in value because of the pandemic. And that's obviously in particular the uh, office sector, but malls have been going through a tough time again. And it now looks like multifamily is going to start going uh, through a bit of a tougher time as rent growth slows. Um, so there's going to be a lot of trouble in commercial real estate in the year ahead. Let me stop you there, though, because, you know, commercial real estate, that's something that comes up a lot. And um, it's a bit confusing to me, given that everyone is kind of back to work um, in their office and they're all out shopping all the time. And they're all, you know, I mean, there, there's not enough real estate to go around. There seems to be a huge demand for real estate. Um, and yet we're seeing still problems. Is it, is it just um, a, a case that there was just way too much debt put on? Um why, why are they still in trouble? Yeah, so partly it's because so much of the debt is interest only. So people haven't been repaying the debt. Um, they've just been paying the interest, obviously. And what, what happens then is when the loan comes due for maturity, the lenders have clamped down now because interest rates have gone, gone up. So the even if the asset's in a pretty good spot, the, the person who owns it may find it difficult to refinance. And if they do, they may have to inject a lot more equity into the asset in order to make it palatable for a lender to borrow. So to give you an example, you might have bought a building five years ago and gotten an 80% loan from the bank. Now the bank might only want to give you 60% loan. Um, the value of the asset might be down 20%. You have to find that money in between, uh, be it through a junior loan or through equity, um, both of which are hard to find, much harder to find now. Uh, and that means that a lot of people are going to default and there's going to be a lot of people hand the keys back to banks in particular uh, and regional banks at that because um, regional banks account for 20 to 45% of uh, commercial real estate lending, depending on which the sector is. And so when those problems come true, it's the regional banks that are really going to feel it. So the building could actually be in a really strong position. They could have tenants. They could be performing. That you know, everyone's paying their rent, and yet still, it's not going to not going to make it. Potentially, yeah. I mean, the bank may take a view that, like you know, we'll wait for the rate cuts to kick in, and it'll be all be fine. But the reality is, uh, in some cases, you're going to see semi decent assets run into trouble. Um, people were buying off on you know, yields based on cheap money, based on quantitative easing, which was pushing up asset prices and creating bubbles, and whether or not they will be able to refinance those loans, it's it's just unclear at the moment. Um, certainly the bank's uh, appetite for commercial real estate risk has fallen. Um, they may try open, throw open the gates again uh, if rates do fall, because uh, obviously they can do new loans at much higher rates, so there's more profit for them potentially in it. The spreads are better. Um, but for now, it still feels like a time to be cautious about commercial real estate. And is it the big banks that, is, that are holding all this debt, or is it the smaller regional banks who's mostly exposed to it? Yeah, the big banks learned a lesson from the 
financial crisis and they've largely, largely stayed away from large-scale lending to um, commercial real estate. Uh, this time around, it's going to be you know, small and regional lenders. If things get bad, it'll be a bit like the savings and trusts um, issue in the 90s where you know rates rose suddenly, there had been too much commercial real estate lending, banks went bust. And, you know, that that is a possibility. There are many regional banks where 40% of their loan books are commercial real estate, maybe sometimes in, in some cases even more. Um, and some of those are probably going to be fine. You know, some of them will be doctor's offices and, you know, small stores. Uh, and those kind of businesses tend to survive even in the recession. Uh, what's going to be harder is if you've got, you know, large-scale lending to suburban office parks with tenants who are kind of struggling along and maybe not able to handle the higher rates themselves, which then will lead to an increase in vacancy and potentially distress coming down the line. And only a, well, less than a year ago, we saw a, a regional banking crisis in the United States. Some of those lenders just disappeared. That was for, for another reason. But is there a chance that we could see maybe some contagion from this? Yeah, I, th- I think it's certainly possible. Um, I'm obviously cautious about, you know, putting my neck in the line saying something like that because you don't know what's going to happen. Uh, again, in terms of bailouts and deposit guarantees and stuff, but um, yeah, I, I, I think it's certainly a possibility that you, that you could see some uh, lenders run into trouble um, later on this year. Now, I know you've been traveling recently. You're on the global czar and you, you're in Asia. Um, are there any particular hotspots? I mean, we've heard a lot about Sweden. We've heard a lot about China. You know, I look out the window. I'm looking out your window in London. I, I, I recall some great stories you had about buildings just around the corner from our office that are in trouble. Is it is it localized or is it just everywhere? Um, what's really interesting this time around is that a lot of it is office buildings and financial centers. Um, which is not something you'd intuitively think, you know, with the banking system in pretty good shape. Um, so, you know, uh, New York, London, Frankfurt, uh, Paris, to a certain extent, or La Défense in Paris, um, which is the office district there. So Canary Wharf, uh, the the owners of that, which are Brookfield and Qatar, putting in more money uh, to, you know, reduce the debt levels there. So that, that's, that's been somewhat surprising, but then it's part of the wider trend of offices in general struggling. Um, I have kind of a working theory uh, that a lot of the um, winners of the financial crisis, if I could put it that way, are going to be the losers this time around. Um, and I think you're starting to see some of that China, uh, the Nordics, Germany, uh, are obvious examples of that. What people may not be as aware of is Korea as well. Did a lot of overseas uh, office purchases in particular, and a lot of them are running into trouble now as well. Um, and a lot of mezzanine finance uh, lending as well. And a lot of those um, funds are going to go to 0% NAV from 100% because the scale of the downturn is such that it's just going to wipe out all the equity uh, and that's going to really leave uh, a lot of investors hurting there. So apart from reading all your great coverage on the Bloomberg Terminal and of course Bloomberg.com, where where can we find this stuff? What, what are the canaries in the coal mine? Are you looking at delinquencies, occupancy rates, um, work from home rates? What's the where Where is the signal coming from? Uh, I always find development land to be one of the most interesting ones in that case because, you know, development land is bought on the basis of hope value. Uh, So you're basically hoping you can sell things for a certain price at the end. Uh, And 
it takes a huge amount of upfront cash to actually build something. And then when you start, you can't really stop, particularly if it's a tower. So the amount of uh, defaults in uh, development land will be really interesting because the price falls there tend to be bigger. So you, the price of a, like the housing market could fall 10%. But the value of the land underneath it could fall 70% as a result. Um, so for me, that's always an interesting one, whether people stop going uh, going ahead with developments or pull developments or de delay developments. And we're going to see, we're already seeing examples of that, but we will see more of that. Uh, and then I just think uh, the short interest on a lot of the companies is one of the things to watch this year. Um, you know, the Fed narrative of, you know, interest rate cuts and stuff, you've seen a lot of um, hedge funds cutting the amount of shorts they have on things like multifamily operators, on mortgage REITs, etc. Uh, if that starts to reverse, that's going to be a super interesting indicator that actually we're in for a much tougher time than people think um you know the, the, it, there's a possibility that this will go on for years it, it doesn't look like it's going to be a short sharp um downturn it's going to be a long drawn out one and i'm talking about commercial real estate there rather than the economy so before we talk to jody lurie over at bloomberg intelligence what else is on your radar neil and, and i also wanted to kind of take a sort of you know the other side of the trade if it were let's say there is a soft landing and rates come down quickly, and the US election is a clean and calm affair, does all the distress just go away? I mean, some people actually are betting on that. You know, we, we, we had a couple of guests on this show, some big guests like KKR, who, you know, one of their points is that, you know, fear is the, uh, is the biggest thing holding us back, that we should be much more aggressive at this point in the cycle, that, you know, it's all good from here for credit. Um, a lot of other big firms like Blackstone and Apollo are really leaning into this um, idea of, you know, take advantage of other people's fear. They obviously have made a lot of money on real estate in the past. Is there a risk we're being maybe too cautious? I mean, you know, 2023 started very nervous about credit, but they actually performed really well. You know, if you sat on cash, you didn't do very well. Um, some people might say this is just, a, you know, one of the great opportunities of our time. Yeah, and certainly the credit providers are saying that, but what's going to be interesting for in their regard is how their legacy books perform, because that's where you're going to see any stress that they see. So again, it's like the regional banks, you know, it's, it's the, the new lending opportunities are fantastic at the rates at which they can lend, but they also need to be very aware of the legacy books in that regard. Um, you know, credit does seem to be in a really good place and a really strong place at the moment. Sentiment is obviously very strong, but I think you said three ifs in a row that that's the perfect scenario and i i mean that's a lot of ifs um but there are certainly people more intelligent uh, and earning far more money than me who are betting on these things all being turning out well and they you know i i, I, I would be hesitant to bet against them but uh, i don't think it's a smooth um journey to the end of this great stuff neil callanan with bloomberg news in london thank you so much for joining us thanks james uh looking forward to seeing how this year goes Read all of Neil's great scoops on the Bloomberg Terminal and, of course, at Bloomberg.com. I'm delighted to welcome back on the Credit Edge, Jody Lurie, who has the best job in the world covering the leisure sector for Bloomberg Intelligence. That's casinos, cruises, theme parks, all the fun stuff. How's it going, Jody? Good. And you are right about that, James. It is not a bad job. Thank you so much for coming back on the show. So the leisure sector was the surprise hit of 2023 in credit, generating huge returns for junk bond investors. 
It's not a very large part of the market, but if you'd invested there, you would have made more than 20% last year, almost double the overall corporate bond market. So you would have done really well. I'm not a big gambler, as you know, and I've never been on a cruise. I tend to stay away from theme parks. So frankly, I'm shocked that it did so well. Um, just so I'm not managing people's money or doing any research for it or anything like that. But but so, Jody, <laughs> my main question is, does this rally continue? I mean, the consumer's been strong for so long. The revenge spending went on way longer than anyone expected. Surely we're done now. You know, slower economy, high rates, inflation, they're all weighing. Or do we all need to go on a cruise or go to the casino because there's so much bad news at the moment? What's What's going on? Well, first of all, I'd say, James, you're definitely in the minority when it comes to not participating in the travel industry. Uh, I guess you're just in love with your job so much that you don't have time to go to theme parks or on cruises. But putting that aside, I will say that 2022 and 2023 were very interesting years in terms of the revenge spending, the revenge travel. The narrative around 2024, and this is what we've talked about in our outlook, is that the momentum will continue, but it will moderate. So we're not going to see the same robust level of spending, but we will see certain bright spots that will continue. I mean, the cruise lines have already been talking about, Royal and Carnival have both said this to, at, at investor events, that they are seeing still very high booking levels, you know, tremendous booking levels. Carnival, I think, is two-thirds booked for 2024 already. So there's there's still this appetite, um, particularly for certain parts of the leisure sector. So I guess there is still demand, but um, in terms of the what the market's already done, I mean, it's done a lot. So we're kind of seeing that it's, mm -hmm. it, it just cannot be sustained. I mean, we're, we're getting, you know, pretty close to par <laughs> on some of these bonds. So sure. there's, there's only so much more you can do. Um, but so um, let's talk about the the cruise lines then to start with, because you mentioned those. Um, they they raised a ton of debt last year. Um, I guess they, they could issue more again this year. There's an opportunity right now. Um, they also have callable bonds. You know, they could refinance. What's the outlook uh, for funding? So just to, to touch on your earlier point when it comes to where the bonds are trading and how much more room we have to run. I, I would say a couple of points to that. You know, what we've been saying for 2024 is it is more of a credit by credit conversation. Case in point, you're seeing companies take much more drastic steps to keep their momentum going. Um, we like to compare the Six Flags and Cedar Fair merger with the Choice Hotels uh, hostile acquisition attempt of Wyndham. Because those are two very different scenarios that will result in different ways that the bonds react. You know, the, for, for Six Flags and Cedar Fair, they're going to be deleveraging with this deal. They're not taking on additional debt and they're trying to do it in a way that's credit favorable. Whereas for, for Choice, they're willing to risk the balance sheet in order to get bigger and to keep the momentum going. Now, going back to cruise lines, what we're seeing is the companies are still in their turnaround story. Uh, definitely a little bit behind some of their peers in leisure as it relates to paying down their debt load, getting their balance sheet in order. They're still not, you know, I would say they're probably fifth inning or so of this. Uh, you know, Carnival brought down their debt load below $31 billion, which is a tremendous feat considering it was over $35 billion at the start of the year. But there's still a lot to go. That's not the balance sheet they had before the pandemic. That's not what they would like to have. 
all three companies, we're talking Carnival, Royal, and Norwegian, are trying to get to investment grade sometime in the next few years. And they've all been pretty aggressive in terms of debt refinancing as well as repayment. And I think they're going to do a combination of both this year. So more likely to pay, pay down debt rather than raise new debt, you think? They'd like to net pay down debt. That said, we've talked with management about this topic quite a bit, particularly recently. And the companies have indicated that if rates are in such a way that it's attractive for them to refinance and push out debt, they will do that as well. But their preferred method is to repay debt. Do you think it's feasible that they could get to investment grade in that time frame that you mentioned by sort of next year? We've run our models and we've looked at what, you know, the Moody's and S&P requirements are to be investment grade and whether or not, you know, from an optimistic standpoint, a more base case and a pessimistic standpoint, if they could get there. And I don't think their expectations uh, for Royal is 2025, for Carnival is 2026. Norwegian has a little bit more vague investment grade like metrics. They didn't specifically say investment grade and they never were investment grade before the pandemic. But for Royal and Carnival, the 2025 and 2026, I believe, is doable. It's just a question of geopolitical risks, whether anything that could sort of waylay these plans that they have to sort of put a wrench in, in the activity that they're seeing. I just wanted to flip to gaming um, briefly because you had a good piece out on Caesars and you cover all of that sector. But but what I'm kind of most interested in in that context is the China effect, because that has been really kind of huge in terms of you know the gaming exposure to Macau, which is a huge gambling center in, in Asia. What's the outlook generally for, for um, gaming firms in your, in, that you cover? So gaming's a little bit more mixed. It's definitely more of a company by company perspective. And I and I say that in such a way that for the regional gaming companies, the companies that have more regional United States gaming, it might be a little bit more difficult depending on how we go economically, depending on where we are with interest rates, depending on where we are with inflation, depending on where we are with jobs, right? So the, a lot of the narrative is what 2024 could look like in terms of if it's going to be a soft landing, hard landing, you know, what the Fed's going to do. We've seen, especially yesterday, uh, dovish commentary. And so I think that's all going to play into the gaming sector, particularly for the second half of 2024. For the first half of 2024, Vegas actually has a lot of positive events going on, case in point, the Super Bowl. They have a couple of premier events that tack on to the second half of 2023 that will be positive from just a top line perspective for these companies. Now, if you look at Macau and you look overseas, it's still in a turnaround phase, but it's a much quicker sort of move upward than what we've seen in Vegas because of China's restrictions in terms of reopening that opened last January. So we're still getting the benefit of those tailwinds that will moderate over time, I believe. But we are seeing that the companies there are benefiting still from this appetite in Macau. Um, elsewhere internationally, we're seeing you know online gaming being a positive for these companies. Uh, we're also seeing expansion into other areas such as the UAE. And so I think there's a lot of interesting elements going on. That said, it's not all credit positive, right? So if you look at MGM, they are being very expansionary, very much focused on 
boosting themselves and and trying to balance both shareholders and bondholders by pulling back in terms of how much they're giving back to shareholders. But at the end of the day, they have tremendous CapEx plans that will sort of put a dent in in their narrative around being credit friendly. For Caesars, they're looking to repay debt, refinance, get their balance sheet in order before they sort of think of anything else beyond that. So for a credit participant, is there a relative value opportunity there? Buy Caesars, sell MGM or something like that? So we can't say buy, sell or hold, but we've been saying that Caesars bonds could tighten to MGM for a while. And I think that that spread will continue to narrow. The other sector that I'm really interested in, and, and you know, the, all the money I don't spend on uh, casinos and cruises, I I spend on hotels and car rentals and, and airlines, obviously, um, <laughs> to go and see my family. But um, the hotels and car rental firms, are they still getting a boost from, from this um, spending, this revenge spending holidaymakers? Or is it now coming from business travel? What's going on there? I think that business travel piece is where you're going to see some of the tail tailwinds. We're going to see conferences and business travel as the main sort of propeller into 2024. Companies will probably have to play around with their rates a little bit coming into this year. You know, last year they could really command higher prices just because there were so many customers who wanted to go places. This year it might be a little bit more of that game of trying to identify where the actual demand is, what the supply is, and and sort of balancing those pieces. But I think what's what's so interesting that we're going to see over the next few years in, in the hotel space is this amalgamation among the companies in terms of the different levels. So you're talking about the different types of class of hotel, right? The, the high-end luxury to the economy. And we're starting to see the Marriott's and the Hilton's of the world really dipping their toe in the water, both domestically and internationally, as it relates to economy, extended stay, and Areas that they're less traditionally not in as they are now. Now, Hyatt is is sort of going all in on the all-inclusive and, and more of the luxury element, as well as vertical integration as it relates to travel. So that should continue. For the rental car space, we're, we're a little bit more cautious on only because they had such tremendous tailwinds due to the used car market and due to the residual value of their fleets. Hertz has really been going big into electric vehicles and not really understanding what the, you know, what the depreciation cost is, what the aftermarket costs for the vehicles are, what the sort of additional elements related to it for collision, et cetera. And so I think that that's going to continue being a dent on them, despite the top line element of it doing well, right? Moment, there's still going to be demand for rental cars. It's more of how they manage their business through this sort of changing environment. Will they stop charging me so much at Heathrow Airport? The prices have <laughs> shot up. <laughs> I can't promise anything on that. Yeah, the prices have definitely shot up, and it, it it doesn't help when you're looking at the cars that are are not your EV friendly cars, and and they charge you the emissions costs and whatever other costs related to your traditional sort of cars. And on the hotel expansion and sort of, um, you know, the, them sort of spreading their wings a bit, do they need to borrow a lot of money to, to do that? So for Hilton and Hyatt, I mean, sorry, for Hilton and Marriott, they're not so much borrowing money for the expansion per se. 
but they are helping out the hotel owners where they can. Case in point, last March when we had the issue with you know, regional banks or sort of the worries about regional banks, there was a lot of discussion about how the hotels could expand if, say, for instance, the hotel owners had issues getting financing. And a bunch of the hotel companies, you know, including some of the, the you know, large and smaller ones, even, you know, Wyndham, for example, um, have, have remarked to us that they are willing to help out where they can from a financing standpoint to, to get these new facilities opening. Um, because, you know, when, once they open, they sort of run themselves and, and, and the companies benefit because they're mostly managers now. They, don't, they aren't actual owners. So they don't have a lot of the CapEx costs. They don't have a lot of the overhead costs the way that you see companies that own and run properties do. Got it. So not a ton of new issuance then from those companies. Well, it, it doesn't mean that we won't see new issuance. I think we'll still see new issuance. I mean, you, you take Marriott, for example, they, they have very much a lather, rinse, repeat model in that they have debt coming due, they refinance it and they push it out, right? That's what okay. they do over and over again. Uh, they yeah. also, you know, one of the things that Marriott did was they pushed to get their ratings back to mid triple B level. And it wasn't just because they wanted to have the ratings that they had pre-pandemic. It was that they are an active participant in the commercial paper market. And they very much showed earlier this year when they borrowed quite a substantial amount. It was over a billion. I'm actually blanking on an exact figure at the moment. But they, you know, they they are an active user of the commercial paper market just to fill in gaps. But then they'll go and replace it with longer term financing when they do, or they'll repay it with cash on hand. But that said, I mean, they they see the debt markets as an area to always go to. And I think you'll see that with Hilton. You know, Hilton is less cares about their balance sheet than Marriott. Um, they are high yield rated and I think they'll stay there unless they actively commit verbally to being investment grade. Um, but, but you know, they are an active issuer as well. And I think we'll, we'll continue to see that, that the hotel companies will come to market. Um, getting back to actually the cruise lines, something that we've said is that for Royal Caribbean, for example, they were also an active participant in the commercial paper market before the pandemic, if that gives you any indication of, of what they'd like to achieve. So to sum up the, the sector you cover, and at the start we talked about you know massive performance, really great performance last year. We expect um, it to do well, but not maybe as well as, as um, it did in 2023. But what are you most excited about for this year, Jody? And, and on, on the flip side, what are, you, what are you most worried about? What gives you the most sleepless nights? <laughs> what doesn't give me sleepless nights? As a credit analyst, you're always looking for the boogeyman over your shoulder. And I, I definitely do feel a little uncomfortable about being constructive on the cruise lines. But at the same time, I think the momentum is there. It's really a question of are these caveats of geopolitical risk, for example, going to waylay their plans. But overall, I think that that's an area that that you'll continue to see the, the deleveraging and, and the benefit of that um, for, for the bonds. That said, for rental car companies, I think, yeah, I think this adjustment from these sort of really robust levels of EBITDA that we saw in 2022, how that then translates to 2024 when we have a very different environment. You know, we're despite the fact that I think you'll see the activity that will feed into revenue, I don't know if you'll ne necessarily see that from a margins and cash flow perspective. Thank you very much, Jody Lurie of Bloomberg Intelligence.
You can read all of her great analysis on the Bloomberg Terminal. Do check it out. And I hope to see you back on the show soon, Jody. Cheers. Have a good one. And thanks again to Neil Callanan with Bloomberg News in London. Read all of his scoops on the Terminal and at Bloomberg.com. And please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Apple, Google, and Spotify. Give us a review, tell your friends, or email me directly at jcrombie8 at bloomberg.net. That's J-C-R-O-M-B-I-E, as in my surname, and the number eight at bloomberg.net. I'm James Crombie. It's been a pleasure having you. Join us again next week on The Credit Edge. Osage County, Oklahoma, is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth, and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.